You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. Hello, and welcome to the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Diane Brady. What a year for fashion it has been. And in this show, we're going to talk about it with two people who know it like few others. Anita Balshandani is a partner in the London office who leads our work in apparel, fashion, and luxury in Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. Achim Berg is a senior partner in Frankfurt and global leader of McKinsey's apparel, fashion, and luxury group. Together, they co-led the 2020 Annual State of Fashion Report, which McKinsey publishes jointly with the business of fashion. Anita and Ahim, welcome. Hi, Diane. Hi, Diane. Hi, great to have you. Ahim, let's start with you. What is the state of fashion? I think it's the challenged state. We've seen a year like no other. It's going to be the worst year for the fashion and luxury industry since, uh, you know, collecting any figures uh, on development. It's unprecedented. It's not comparable to a financial crisis. It's probably closer to what people must have seen during the Great Depression. So it's a really bad year and devastating for the industry. Now, so it's it's understandable we've been sitting home. In fact, when I asked told somebody I was doing this podcast. She goes, the state of fashion is sweatpants. I haven't left my home in you know, seven months. So is this simply a question of obviously retailers have been closed and that's simply impeded sales? Great question, Diane. And it's clear that at leisure, casual wear have seen a huge acceleration over this pandemic. But let's not forget, so has digital. While overall industry sales will be down, there's no question about that, especially earlier on in the pandemic when food and health and safety were far more important than fashion on the minds of consumers. What we have seen is a huge acceleration and step change in online channels. And in many countries, as of next year, 40% of all sales will be digital. And certainly as players have seen stores reopen, digital channels continue to be in growth. So we think that's been one of the silver linings, if you will, and one of the areas of opportunity that the industry has been able to play with and work with over this last year. But I think we've also clearly seen a casualization underway. Casualization? That's a great term. What does that mean? Well, it means uh, dresses have become much more casual, but that is not Mm -hmm. an invention of COVID. It's actually a trend we've seen for a long while, you know, moving away from more formal wear, having casual Fridays, not only on Fridays, but also from Monday to Thursday. Uh, And of course, uh, you know, working from home uh, without the restrictions that you typically have in an office have an impact on how you dress. On the other hand, I think we should not forget uh, that we're lacking many occasions where people, you know, dress up. Yeah. So weddings have been canceled and postponed. Concerts have been canceled. A lot of culture... And people gathering uh, had to be cancelled due to the pandemic. All of that has an impact on how we dress and it has an impact on what we shop and how we shop it. So when I look at the reports from previous years, Anita, there you do talk a lot about the disruption in the industry. Has this accelerated the trends that you were already watching? Diane, you're exactly right. What we've seen through COVID 
is indeed in the main an acceleration of a lot of the trends that were already underway. Whether you look at digital, sustainability, um, even at leisure, casualization, these were all trends that we were seeing before the crisis. And if anything, that's been amplified over the course of the crisis. There definitely have been a few things that you could really pin down specifically um, to the crisis, which is clearly international travel, which has driven segments like luxury and travel retail has clearly stalled. And that was sort of in some ways probably one of the areas where we saw a stalling or reversal of a trend. But everything else that we look at, it's really COVID has been an acceleration of many of the trends that we've seen. And if anything, that trend is accelerated. Mm -hmm. Akim, what kinds of players have really proven to be most resilient in this situation or even most vulnerable? Uh, let's start with the winners of this. It's actually the winners we had identified beforehand, at least to a very large extent. The industry is a winner-takes-all uh, industry, uh, and we've seen that the top 20% of the industry were already responsible for the lion's share of value creation. We've also made analysis in the past that showed that only 45% of uh, the companies really generate an, you know, an economic profit which means they not only earn their cost of capital, but they really, uh, you know, create some margin at the end. Uh, that got accelerated uh, through COVID. By now, only 27% expected to be value creators. And if you ask for which companies are that, you know, it's, uh, you could say to a certain extent, it's the typical suspects, you know, very strong brands with a strong balance sheet. Uh, that were already in a better position when this crisis hit. They were more digital, they were more international with a stronger exposure to China. They were also able to invest in, into sustainability and into really you know, close relationships uh, with the consumers through modern technology, through social media, and all the innovations that we've seen in the industry. Anita, I'm just I'm contemplating this 73% of companies, I guess, being value destroying if the 27% are value creating. When I look at that particular trend, is part of the issue during this crisis brand loyalty? Certainly we've seen, you know, at the retail level, consumers have been less loyal to the brands we put on our shelves. Is that similar to the clothes we now put on our body? So absolutely, the trend of greater share of the industry now being in value destruction territory is clearly accelerated from the run rate we were seeing prior to COVID. I think we would put this down to a number of different factors. Let's not forget at the start of the crisis, fashion was not a top priority for consumers. And people were busy with food, with health and a number of other priorities. So I think this pandemic has forced a demand sort of rethink in certainly the earlier part of the crisis. The second factor that's playing out here is, you know, what we wear and the product mix of that has been dramatically different, owing to the fact that we're all now spending much more time at home. So I think all of that has caused a real demand shock in the system. You've had then the second factor here, which is a lot of the channels that a number of brands would rely on, e.g. wholesale channels, independent retailers, etc., have actually been at the sharp end of uh, seeing the pain from the crisis. And finally, you've had a huge pivot to digital. 
And if you were a player that wasn't sort of fully, you know, able to capitalize on that, then we've typically seen a deflection into absolutely brands and consumers have shown to us during the crisis that they're open for change. They're open to try new brands. And so we have seen loyalty being questioned in a way. And we've also seen just greater propensity to try new brands and also channels, particularly online. And those are typically been the players that have, to some extent, also been, relatively speaking, more resilient. Akib, that propensity to change seems to be an opportunity, does it not? What are you telling people, let's say I'm a retailer, forgive me, I'm I'm a fashion brand that's on the losing side of the equation at the moment. What can I do? I think the first good news is it's fashion. So I think if you really understand the trends, if uh, if you make your product relevant just from a you know product point of view, you can still play. Yeah. So it's art and science, and the art part will always be strong in this industry. Uh, I think on the on the science part, um, you know, it's difficult if if you've missed the train on digital. If you uh, are undercapitalized uh, and lack uh, now the budgets to invest into the future, and if you have to deal with a lot of the legacy of uh, what used to be retail dominated, of course, there is a lot of challenges and we will see a massive consolidation. But it also means that this consolidation will uh, give some room to breathe and will provide some market share uh, opportunities for those that get through this and uh, will likely be, you know, embarking from this crisis in a stronger fashion. So consolidation, meaning the brands become part of a larger, almost conglomerate, or that the brands disappear? We've seen after the financial uh, crisis, a lot of what we call zombie brands, you know, basically brands that were still around, but that were, you know, undercapitalized, were also not really in fashion with the consumers but still somehow alive and managing to get from one year to the other. In that respect, uh, 2020 uh, will make a difference and also 2021 will prove to be different. So, Anita, I feel we'd be remiss in talking about fashion if we didn't talk about the trends. Both of you certainly weigh in here, but anything strike you this year or anything looking ahead that you see as more of the motif of our tastes? So I think the one thing that we've seen, the trend around casualization, which we've talked about, mm-hmm. we could well imagine that there is a revival towards glamour as we start to come out of this, right? And we're already seeing the need for self-expression doesn't go away because we've just been through a pandemic. So to some extent, we think the demand for product that is more special, more glamorous, etc., will sort of make a comeback. I think if we anticipate, and you'll see in the report that nearly 80% of industry executives feel that the working model of the future will be hybrid. So people are you know, typically going to be working from home two to three days and the rest in the office. And I think that will result in, we might see some schizophrenic behavior, which is really sort of dressing up and looking your best on the days that you're out and being much more casual and cocooned when you're in the home. However, I think what is what we're also likely to see is the new variant of glamour will also come with a degree of comfort. I think people have realized that 
clothing that's comfortable, that uh, falls well, that feels good, that is well made, is, is sort of become, you know, probably just much more important given the lives that, that we've been leading. So that probably is something that will continue. Goodbye, four-inch heels. I can't say I'll miss them. <laughs> so, Akim, there certainly seems to be more discussion of sustainability. Is that a trend that's going to transform the priorities in fashion? I think we've seen that transformation underway for a while. Yeah, I think uh, in, in last mm-hmm. year's report, we said sustainability will be the big topic uh, in 2020. And I think despite the fact that obviously the uh, the corona crisis was the big topic, sustainability still stayed hugely relevant. We've also published uh, a report uh, called Fashion on Climate uh, together with our partners from the, the Global Fashion Agenda that mm-hmm. looks into the CO2 footprint of the fashion industry uh, to the planet and what it takes in order to reach the Paris targets. And that is massive. I think uh, the industry needs to do a lot, needs to bring uh, the emissions down by a minimum of 50%. The question is more, how is COVID impacting that? And I think the jury is still out. You know, market research makes us believe that people have uh, become more conscious. They had just time to think about it. Uh, They had time to look into their wardrobes. They had Mm -hmm. time to realize that they need far less fashion if they don't have the occasions to wear it. And coming back to the jogging pant from the earlier discussion, uh, I think that a jogging pant uh, can get you a long way these days. But, uh, you know, we will see. I think uh, if the roaring 20s are back uh, and if we're all going to celebrate that the pandemic has vanished, uh, we might go back to uh, buying more. uh, And then we hopefully buy it more with sustainability in mind. You know, I've seen some strange bedfellows might be the term, you know, luxury brands partnering up with what essentially are resale sites, like buying streetwear brands. What's going on? I think actually it's a, this day of reckoning for fashion is sort of probably broader than just about sustainability. I think it's a whole revisit of how the fashion industry works and to really reimagine it in a way that's future-proof. So some of those examples that you just called out are really a recognition that whether it's pre-owned, whether it's resale, whether it's casualization, these are trends that are here to stay for the consumer of tomorrow. And if you're a luxury brand that's going to remain relevant in the next decade, then some of these opportunities really actually present tailwinds that you should be accelerating towards as well. So I think this moment and certainly the last nine months have sort of really shown us that there are almost no sacred cows in a way. And fashion businesses are taking stock of how they can really reshape their future on a number of different dimensions. And I think it's also a great example uh, to see how the one and the others uh, can be connected because uh, one of the key issues for the fashion industry when it comes to sustainability is that the garments are not worn as long as they should be worn. So um, Mm -hmm. the fact that a secondary market, you know, really got a boost through uh, digital innovation because it's now, you know, a digital exercise uh, and it's it's somehow lost its stigma with the younger consumers. Uh, It even became trendy. Uh, is a nice way how technical innovation, a new consumer group and sustainability, you know, actually come together and create a whole new market. 
and uh, a better footprint for the industry. But what are the conditions for young designers who are starting out? Is it more difficult or in some ways do they have a wider script to be doing, to be finding a market, frankly? I think on the one end, we see a consolidation uh, of brands, as we discussed it beforehand. So you could uh, think that the opportunities for young designers will become fewer. On the other side, I think the digitization of the whole industry, uh, the fact that you can basically, you know, start your own brand, uh, bring it to a broader audience than your local environment through digital platforms, through direct-to-consumer, through social media, also provides opportunities. So I'm not concerned that we're going to have a lack of creativity, of new designers. That's what the whole industry lives off. And everybody in this industry is well advised to nurture that. And Diane, I think I'd also say that it really depends on the life stage of the brand. I actually think it's easier today to launch a brand if you're a designer because mm-hmm. of the access to consumers. We actually believe it's easier today to start a brand and to launch something because you have a lot of you know, digital innovation to be able to access a global consumer. You've got access to crowdfunding and sources of capital, all of which we believe are easier today than they might have been historically. However, when it comes to scaling up a brand, And I think that's where we probably start to see that designers may need to, for example, and if you look at the beauty industry as an analog, a lot of the disruptive startups were really able to gain momentum, but ultimately actually have found themselves and their homes to be within a larger business to really help them with the what it takes to scale up the business in a global way. So I think the opportunities for designers and what that looks like may vary by life cycle on the startup phase versus the scale-up phase. Right. I would like to actually ask both of you, but to me, the spiritual center of fashion, traditionally, certainly Europe, and to some extent, I guess to a large extent, uh, North America, you are in Europe, the Middle East, Africa. Anita, let me start with you in terms of the global perspective, both consumption trends and the innovation that we're seeing, is there still this pivot toward, let's say, European brands, or are you seeing shifts there? Is that the right way so, to phrase it? You know, yeah. basically, well, yeah. so I think actually the word is <laughs> it's a great question. And if we start to think about how brands are discovered today, and what drives sort of consumers to shop them, then I think we're living in a world which is increasingly global, increasingly interconnected. And it makes it much easier for consumers around the world to find that designer or that label from Paris versus America. And by the way, let's not forget that a lot of the online platforms are also making it possible for brands from Asia or indeed even manufacturers from Asia to be able to connect with consumers around the world. So to that extent, we feel the flavor is sort of overall actually uh, is getting much more global because of the way brands are discovered and the role that digital channels have to play in that. But I think equally, if we go back to the point that Akim made earlier around this also is starting to show the hallmarks of a winner-takes-all market where the big brands are sort of have proven that they are you know more resilient and uh, in many ways consumers have gravitated towards these bigger brands that have a clear sort of 
uh, value proposition and a clear sort of uh, positioning in consumers' minds, then I think you could argue that some of the bigger brands are really sort of setting the scene for consumer demand around the world. That's a great point. And Akim, you mentioned uh, Asia. You know, certainly, from an economic point of view, we can understand how that's becoming a bigger force. You know, from a distribution point of view and some of the online platforms and such, that also seems to be a factor. Why is Asia so important in fashion? right now. I think you're absolutely right. I think Asia is very important and let's name it. I think it's mainly China that is driving uh, the increase in demand. You have highly developed big and relevant markets like Japan and uh, South Korea. But if you look at growth rates in recent years, but also in this year, China is the only uh, country probably with a positive GDP growth. Mm -hmm. That has a massive impact uh, on the industry. And we were already writing two years ago that you know, the center of gravity is moving back to the east. And that's exactly what we've seen this year. And uh, I think the whole industry has uh, seen how dependent we are uh, on the Chinese market. It started at the beginning of the year when a lot of the, the more mid-market brands were concerned about their growth because of the outbreak of COVID. But I think we've seen a much harder lesson for the luxury industry afterwards because a lot of the luxury industry in Europe, also in North America, was and currently still is dependent on the international traveler from China. Right. To a lesser extent, also from the Middle East, uh, from India. And now that this consumer is unable to make it into Europe uh, and to North America, that consumption goes away. It is repatriated in a way in China. So people have started really to consume luxury uh, domestically in China, even if prices are 20, 30% higher than uh, in, in Europe. But it also shows that the complete lack of sales we've seen in Europe, which now, funnily, leads the, the luxury brands to uh, go back to the local customers. And uh, mm -hmm. given that we don't expect travelers uh, to come back uh, within, let's say, 21, earliest than 22, and that things only normalize in three to five years, uh, there will be a lot of focus on, on local and regional customers uh, in Europe and in North America in the next couple of years. So, Anita, what about the store experience, um, since that's so critical to fashion? Is it dead? Look, I think we've all seen the acceleration in digital channels. There's no question that the role of stores and certainly the scale of a portfolio that is appropriate for a brand or retailer to have is going to be called into question. And many will be reviewing their store portfolios and in, indeed their rental cost base. Having said that, we believe there's going to be a reimagined role of the store as well that will emerge from all this. And particularly, we've been quite excited to see some of the innovation that finally makes the merging of online and offline channels a reality. So, for example, we've seen players draw on you know, customers who are on a website able to connect with colleagues in store for customer service. We've seen in many cases store colleagues starting to pick, pack and kind of get customer orders uh, ready to ship. So we've seen actually for the first time probably much greater integration and ability of both store colleagues and physical locations to also power the digital experience. And we think that's going to be an exciting area of innovation for the future. So much of fashion is 
both tactile, also event-driven. I know here in New York, Fashion Week is an event that extends far beyond the world of fashion. I want to ask a more personal question, Anita, about your own habits and how they've changed and, and what you miss. You must have spent a lot of time on the road prior to this. Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> uh, and I would say I'd always like to look at the, the positives that have come out of this and clearly some of the other things which we miss and crave in a way. I think the fact that this has brought about just a much more thoughtful reflection on where it makes sense to travel versus actually what are things that can be done well virtually. And I think we will end up in a bit of a balance around that, right? What we've been doing over the last nine, 10 months is quite frankly out of force, mm -hmm. you know, because we've had lockdowns and various measures. But I think we'll come out of it and sort of find a balance which allows us to spend more time making sure we get home in the evening or that we have a certain sort of proportion of the week which we can base ourselves from home, but also actually bring us back to some of those conversations and connections which are really important to innovate, excite, and uh, work much more collaboratively with teams and with clients. And I think my rule of thumb or conclusion is we've all found we can be extremely productive even in a virtual world. But actually, it's very difficult to really also be able to do some of the things that call for greater innovation, inspiration, connection, relationship building in a purely virtual world. So I'm hoping that we will come out of this into a much more blended sort of form uh, that is mm -hmm. the best of both worlds. Akim, these kind of industry gathering events, are, are they going to be less important in the physical world since we can kind of do them virtually? I think uh, we, we've already seen that the role of the fashion shows, uh, you know, have become less important than they used to be. You know, mm. in the old day, uh, it was basically two times a year uh, in each of those fashion cities to inspire, to produce some news, to produce pictures and stories uh, for the media and for the brands to communicate uh, about the innovations and the new collections. In the world of social media, you know, two times a year multiplied by four or five cities, you know, it's just not enough. Yeah. So yeah. we've seen that, you know, more storytelling was required, more occasions were required. And fashion shows, in a way, have only become one of many moments uh, to create these stories. But I think I'm, I'm fully in line with Anita. I think the industry needs to get to, together. It needs to exchange the same way as we need to exchange with our clients. And uh, a lot of ideas, a lot of opportunities are created through those kind of unplanned gatherings and discussions uh, that we all have under those circumstances. And using video conference and telephone uh, is efficient, but also much more transactional. Yeah. So I can't wait uh, to be back at the fashion shows. I can't wait to be really back uh, in the boardrooms of my clients. And uh, hopefully at least the second half of the next year will get us there. And the only thing I would add, Diane, though, the, mm -hmm. the bar on what would get us out of bed, I think, has risen, right? So I think <laughs> it will be important that, you know, the event or what we're stepping out of is sort of really, I think we will absolutely take the time to do that for important moments and special occasions. But I think some of the other 
meetings and conversations that one might look back and say were probably not that essential or didn't quite uh, require all that effort into traveling to, I think we will all start to question those as well. This push for social justice, whether it's Black Lives Matter, just this understanding of embracing diversity. And I'm curious around the extent to which this is influencing your end of the business, because fashion is as much a political statement as it is a personal style statement. Are you seeing that start influence conversations in any respect, Akim? It already has massively. And as you say, I think fashion is a mirror of culture, is a mirror of uh, what's going on in the world. And it's also an expression of yourself and what you believe and what you want to make others see. So there's always a translation of that, you know, into fashion, uh, into, into style. And I think we also clearly see that social media and uh, new consumer generations that are much more sensitive for those topics want to see that reflected in the way brands act, uh, present themselves. And I think um, sustainability, social justice, uh, equality, uh, all of those topics are highly relevant. We're still in the middle of tough times right now. Anita, what advice? give to people in the industry or even to individuals listening to this? Diane, I think it would be best summarized that we're certainly looking forward at a recovery trajectory. However, let's not forget that the recovery isn't going to be complete even next year, right? So we will continue to live with the virus and its consequences. And The key takeaway, if we think about the characteristics and traits of those who have been, relatively speaking, more resilient through this period, is number one, it will call for speed and responsiveness, really staying tuned to where the consumer is heading, what matters, and how quickly players can really respond and pivot around that. Secondly, it's really going to be about focus. Brands and players and individuals, you could argue, won't win by spreading their efforts and attention everywhere. It will call for focus and particularly focus in the channels and the markets and geographies that are going to drive this recovery. So you have to be where the recovery is in order to ensure that you can stay ahead and win as part of this recovery. And finally, I think it's important to note that this recovery we believe is going to come with a market share redistribution. So the recovering tide, if you will, is not going to lift every player. We think it's going to lift the players that are better positioned, will end up gaining and distributing market share in their favor. So really thinking about what it is that would take for you to be a winner in market share terms as as we come out of the recovery, I think that's going to be a really essential lens for companies to adopt. Great. Akim? I think I would would like to emphasize that despite the fact that it's all tough to live through this crisis, it's also an amazing opportunity for this industry. And it was somehow overdue, yeah, because I think we all learned uh, somewhat the hard way that this industry can innovate. Think about how product has been developed in the last couple of months. Very often from a kitchen table, uh, much more uh, you know, digitized, uh, using uh, tools, not being with your factory. 
selling online, not in stores, building up new capabilities, being much more agile and flexible than we used to be. I think we should, uh, you know, make sure that a lot of those workarounds and new techniques become a new standard and a new reality. And uh, that will help to innovate the industry. I think we will always need fashion. Uh, so I'm not concerned about that. And uh, if the industry gets its act together, uh, it will also continue to be successful in the future. Definitely. I think I'm looking forward to the day when I can uh, wear something a little different from my athleisure. Anita Baltandani, Achimberg, thank you very much for uh, joining us. Thanks, Diane, for having us. It's been a real pleasure, Diane. Thank you. Great. And thank you. To those of you who have been listening, if you'd like to find out more information, please do go to mckinsey.com. You will find the State of Fashion report there and also much, much more. Until next time, I'm Diane Brady. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook.